look around at this great city of ours, what do you see? I see a multitude of amazing people. Over the next hour, Bill Wilson will talk to some of these amazing people about topics that interest you and give you just what you need to kick off your week with a dang on the Mr. Murphy's Murder Show. Good evening, Murfreesboro. This is Mr. Murfreesboro, also known as Bill Wilson. Thanks for joining us here on the Mr. Murfreesboro Show here at WGNS 1450 AM and 100.5 FM Talk Radio. And I'm excited about tonight's show. My co-host, Kelsey Williams, is here. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, hey. How's it going? So good. What have you been up to? Uh, well, I'm, I'm honestly intimidated to be here tonight. I'm like in the in the arms of greatness here in the arms of greatness <laughs> hey let's get right to it but b- before we do I, I just want to make one announcement real quick the the junior league of murfreesboro has their holiday marketplace coming up and it's going to be saturday december the 3rd from 9 to 11 that's 9 in the morning till 11 a.m that's their mimosa party and it's at the tennessee miller coliseum if you want more information i'll post uh, link where you can get tickets here because we're live on facebook at mr murfreesboro on facebook and if you want some call if you want to call in the number is 615-893-1450 but i'm excited tonight because uh this guy he's this gentleman is a uh is a legend in my eyes i mean his family goes way back here i mean generations and uh everybody knows i love history and I think we need two hours tonight. Yeah, we need we'll just come back. Right? Okay. This yeah, is your second time. Yeah. It is second time. It is the yeah. second time, but this is Herschel Mullins, and I want. We're, hello, Herschel. How you doing? That'll work. You, uh, your family goes <laughs> way back here. We're going to talk a little bit about Veterans Day, and because you're a veteran, a right. Vietnam veteran, right. uh, we're going to talk about being a cowboy. Now you do know Herschel's my dad. Herschel was his dad. <laughs> Right. Therm. I'm sorry. Did I say Herschel? Did I say Herschel? Twice. I'm sorry. Twice. My mind's not Somebody right. Somebody get, forgive get me. bottle Thurman. of water away from him. Yeah, yeah, for real. Please forgive me. But Thurman. That's who, all right. Who gets to carry on Herschel's legacy? legacy. There yeah, you go. Yeah, there we go. Well, sorry about that. Well, I grew up, that. I was always Herschel's boy. I mean, you know, we'd be all around the square, and somebody would say, who's that? And that's Herschel's boy. So Herschel's boy. I was Herschel's boy for a lot of years. I know? can relate to that. Oh. I've always been somebody's little brother, big brother. Yeah. Somebody's son or grandson. Yeah. But but you also were Charlie Daniels, like, right-hand man. I mean, you were well, there. Well, Charlie had a lot of right-hand men. I mean, he really did. You know, I, I hear that a lot. I worked on the ranch, and, and we were real good friends. And um, it was the kind of thing – it never was a competition, but Charlie was one of those people. Um, if you ask him who his best friend was in the last few years, he'd say, "Well, number one's Jesus, number two's Hazel, mm-hmm. third one's little Charlie, and then there's a multitude." And after that, everybody that worked for Charlie was family. I mean, they just were. Right. And uh, people that came stayed. I mean, um, I was talking to Chris Wormer the other day that. It was a lead guitarist and when, for Charlie for Charlie yeah. for a number of years, and uh, him and Bruce Brown both were lead guitars, 
And when the band ended, when Charlie passed away, and that, of course, ended the CDB as such, uh, he went a whole different direction with computers and things like that. And um, he said he got all kind of calls, people wanting him to play with them. But he said, after he played with the CDB, he says, it's all downhill. He said, uh-huh. I, I got as good as it can get. Right. And he said, I just don't have any interest. He still plays, but just because he wants to, you know, but not, it's not something he wants to, at this point in time, wants right. to go with a career. Uh, Bruce, um, the other lead guitar player, he is uh, playing some local venues over around Fairview and Dixon. And then he's originally from Indiana. He goes up and plays some dates there. Right. But there again, he doesn't really want to go back on the road. Because, I mean, Charlie, when the CDB was hauling, they hauled. <laughs> and How many dates? They would what be out of 100? Over 100 dates. Yeah. Uh, John Rich did the last interview uh, Charlie did. And they wanted to have a horse up there when they were doing the interviews at the house. And so I carried a horse up and was standing there visiting with them. And just in conversation, John said, uh, Charlie, how many dates do y'all have this year? And he said, I hadn't checked today, but said the last I looked at it, I think it was like 112. And said, so we're still adding. And John said, I don't see how you do it. You know, He, he was, was close to 80. Well, how old was he? He was 83. He was 83 when he and passed. And he's still two going. weeks before he passed. Wow. And, the day the day before he passed, he would walk two miles every morning. He'd do it just really on the ranch or, uh-huh, yeah. or wherever they were. If it's beautiful, if they were out, out on the road, they would get off the bus and he'd have these two weights in his hands and he'd go like he's marching design. You know? right. <laughs> you, how did you get hooked up with him? How, how did I that was happen? a park ranger at Cedars of Lebanon. I know, and okay. they had bought uh, their first track of twin pines ranch just before it was twin pines and at that point it had a double wide on it it was about 65 acres give or take and they lived in mount juliet him and hazel and little charlie they would come out ride horses uh stay in the cabin uh, sometimes they'd rehearse out there but um i was over at the uh, uh park and um uh, Right after they bought the place, they'd gotten a bull and about 10 cows, and they had several horses there. And they came over, and they uh, were looking for Robbie Stem. And the Stems lived right next to the ranch. And Robbie was working at Cedars 11 at the time as a maintenance man. Super, super nice young man, and uh, they just didn't make them any better. And they were wanting to hire Robbie just to look after the place and, you know, feed the horses, check the cows, mm-hmm. do the fencing. Mm-hmm. And um, Robbie was out on the riding trail at the time with a group. He was working out of the riding stables that they had back then. And while we were talking, waiting for Robbie to come back, Charlie asked me, he says, you don't know of anybody that has any really good broke horses for sale, do you? And I said, well, right off, I know of two. I said, I've got two horses for sale. <laughs> So after they talked to Robbie, and Robbie was ecstatic, he was ready to leave the park service. So he he leaves and goes to work uh, with Charlie and uh, Hazel and little Charlie. Uh, And uh, we ride that day over to my dad's place. And I had a horse called Rebel, and Rebel was... uh, Did he have a cause? Do I? Did he have a cause? (laughs) 
have a cause? Re- rebel who, uh, without a cause. Oh, he actually <laughs> had a cause. Well, you know what? His, his registered name was Notter's Setting Son, and he was an own own son of Setting Son that Sam Pascal won the world on. Sam Pascal. And he uh, used to be a fellow named Joe Jernigan, who yeah. was one of the early, early guys in the walking horse business. Well, Mr. Joe lived on Old Nashville Highway. He was an old family friend. I had a son, Clyde, that worked there in the barn with him. And I'd known Mr. Joe forever. So when I got home from Vietnam, one of the first things people I went to see was Mr. Joe. Right. And I, he lived to be, I think, over 100, but he was around forever and nice, nice little man. And I went over and uh, he said, uh, you need another horse, don't you? And been gone. I says, well, right now I'm trying to put some money together. I'm not really wearing <laughs> by. He said, I've got a horse I need to sell. And I said, what have you got, Mr. Joe? And he said, this horse is bred the best, but said he's not going to make it in the show ring. And he said, they put a trailer park in right down below us. And said, these kids are out there chasing him out in the field and trying to climb on him. And he said, I'm worried we're going to get sued. And Mm, he said, I like the horse. He said, and he is broke to ride. This is in 1970, uh, right after I got home. And anyway, we talked about him, and I said, what do you need for this horse? And he said, well, said, uh, me and Clyde's talked and said, we'd like to get 800. Said, uh, we would take six. And so I told Clyde <laughs> that, that if we just price? had to get him go, we'd let him go for four. And <laughs> wow, I how about said, three? Wow. I said, well, I'll give four for him. So when I went to get him, Mr. Clyde was ticked off. And uh, he said, Clyde said, this boy here in the neighborhood, they'd keep me in ponies when I was a kid. He just got back from Vietnam. Yeah, and just got home and all that. So anyway, I kept him three or four years, Rebel. And um, that's what I got to call him. And then um, the day Charlie and I rode over, um, I told him 500 if he wanted Rebel. And I had a little mare named Kelly. And I said, I'd take 500 for her. So we get over there, and Charlie uh, gets on Rebel, and he rides him down. My dad had a long driveway out at Blackman, and he goes back. He comes back. He's grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> he's excited. And uh, he gets off, and he rides Kelly, and he says, we'll take both of them. Aww. I said, well, I said, I've got notices already up around some bed offices and sale barns. That if anybody wanted to buy both of them, they could have both of them for nine hundred. You know, four fifty a piece, knock some off. He said, "No." Nope. He said, "People find out I'm." I didn't even know who really who Charlie was at right. that time. <laughs> he said, "People try to sell me horses that nowhere in league with these for twenty thousand and thirty oh, thousand." Oh wow! And he said, "I like these horses." And he said. Uh, he said, I'll give a thousand. I said, No, it'd be nine hundred and he said, Hazel, write him a check. So anyway, I <laughs> got a thousand. That ended it and then I did You made a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. yeah. And, and we got out well and I, I was with the parks. I was working seven days a week at parks back in those days. And so it wasn't really where I had any time to fool with them. Right. And uh, so Anyway, we got him sold, and Rebel was like Charlie's favorite horse for a long time, and mm-hmm. he rode him with a Western saddle, uh, Toy Caldwell, and um, uh, his brother gave Charlie a real nice Western saddle uh, early on. They were with Marshall Tucker, right. and um, and <laughs> we were up one day riding, and that's before I ever went to work for Charlie, and he had a happy mare that had a coat, and we were riding up across the field, and Charlie had his western saddle with his knife and his rope on the saddle. And Charlie said, um, 
He said, Bud, do you think you could rope off old Rebel? And I said, Charlie, the number three man in the PRCA right now is roping on a Tennessee walking horse out of Idaho. I said, you know, it's all how they're trained, how they're built. I said, not all walking horses really walk. And I said, you know, that's why you have such a select few in the show ring. But I said, uh, yeah, you could teach old Rebel. And about that time, he just gigged Rebel up and took off, and that coat broke and run. Right. And Charlie's swinging this big loop, and he just throws a haymaker, and it goes right <laughs> over that coat's head. I mean, <laughs> I don't know who was the most surprised, Rebel, me, the coat. <laughs> Charlie, and Charlie was tied off hard and fast, which you don't want to do. We always dally rope when we got into the rope and into things. But anyway, the coat hit the end of that rope, and he just froze. And Charlie looked over at me just as unconcerned. He says, what do I do now, bud? And I said, it starts out, our Father, which art in heaven. And I said, let me get off. Thank for God for the pins. Yeah, right? so I got, the, I got a hold of the rope, and we was able to get it untied without cutting it. And I said, Charlie, really, we got to work on him some. I so said, y'all, y'all met uh, through horses. Through basically. horses. And then um, – I'd go over and worm their horses, and we'd ride, and they'd call. I'd trim their hooves sometimes right. and stuff like that. And, um, and there's was, an art to that. Oh, there's yeah. There's a YouTube channel that I don't know why I watch it. it I watch <laughs> them trimming hooves, and it's When it's I started MTSU, you could take Farrier Science, and the right. guy that was teaching it at the time wrote the only decent book I ever saw on shoeing. His name was Don Canfield, little bitty man. Yeah. But he only stayed about two years. And the reason being was he was losing money. Mm -hmm. He could make a whole lot more money. Uh, and he had the kind of name. He'd worked for Budweiser doing the Clydesdales. Um, I remember one time he took off a week and he went to New York doing a bunch of show ponies. Right. He was that level of farrier. Big uh, time. He was big time. And then when I came back out of the service, they had a guy teaching, and that was sort of a bad deal. Um, I, I wouldn't have wanted that job just because of you had such a variety of students. And animals can be dangerous people can be kind people can be abusive right. sometimes you can be kind and firm and people think you're being abusive right. I mean, you know it's just it's not always what it looks like right. and one of the dumb things they were doing was if you had a horse you could call and if you were like the first two or three to call they you could bring your horse and they would shoe it in the class and not cost you anything oh. it sounded really cute and these people brought a Mustang in that was not broke it at all. It was like Bronco. Oh, it was crazy. <laughs> right and, from the... <laughs> and it had a... They put it in the cross ties, which, you know, that's where you've got a rope coming from each side of the halter to something right. fixed over here. And at um, any rate, this horse was pawing, rearing, scared to death. If it had been up to me, I'd have just told them, look, you know, you need to go break your horse and... Before you bring it, it before in Before you bring here. it in for this. But he, I think, and this was a big guy, and he was a decent kind of fellow, but he's like horse cart right big. And I think he was just wanting to show him that the horse wasn't going to uh, buffalo him. And he went up and smacked the horse with a rasp on the side of the neck, which mm. just basically it not wouldn't hurt the horse, but hopefully it'd make him yeah. jolt and settle down right. a minute. 
Well, it didn't. The horse flipped itself over and broke a horse's neck and oh, killed him right there. No. Right there in uh, class. And there was two or three kids Ouch. in the class that absolutely did not like this teacher. And, I mean, it was in the media at the time Shoot. and all that. Was this in the, seven, it was the, in the early 70s? early 70s. Yeah. And, and that shut the shoeing classes down. That was that it. Just, yeah. I, I, if they ever had them after that, I'm not aware of it. But they, they have horse had. barns right off the ground. I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but there's horse barns. Off of, there used to be uh, off of Greenland Drive. Yeah. Stables. Well, at one point where the ag building wound up. Um, Don't ask me how I know that. But that's right beside the ag building was the dairy barn. When I started there, they were milking at yeah. the dairy barn. And uh, when I came back out of the service, they had turned the dairy barn into the art barn. Yeah. That's, and so they were giving art classes there. Yeah. And then... Um, the field where they built the big uh, auditorium and all of that, that's where they ran the brood mares. Right. And they had a stud barn, they called it, where they had a few stallions in it there. And then they built that first right. arena. We've got, we're here with Thurman Mullins. Herschel's boy. Herschel's boy. <laughs> uh, and we're going to be right back with some more stories. <laughs> Drake's Barbershop began when local resident Robert Drake opened the business in 1972. Veteran Jason Rigney purchased the business in 2003, and this kept Drake's Barbershop a staple here in Murfreesboro. Jason has kept the legacy alive. Veterans receive a discount for haircuts. You can follow them on their Facebook page at Drake's Barbershop. The American Musical Arts Group is proud to present the Dewdrop Jamboree on Saturday, November the 5th at 6 p.m. It'll be held in the Washington Theater at Patterson Park Community Center here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. There'll be a $10 cover at the door. For more information, head on over to amagroup.org. Once again, that's the Dewdrop Jamboree on Saturday, November the 5th at 6 p.m. at the Patterson Park Community Center. Old Stone Fort Golf Course is the place for you to get away for the day to play golf. Located right next to the beautiful Duck River and only five minutes from I-24. Whether you're a beginner or avid golfer, Old Stone Fort Golf Course is ideal for you. Golf carts are available and there is a golf shop. You can play nine holes for $9 and kids 12 and under play for free. They are located at 1017 Country Club Lane in Manchester, Tennessee. You can call for a tee time at 931-954-0366. You can also follow Old Stone Fort Golf Course on Facebook. Did you know there is a new title and escrow company in town and they have 20 plus years of experience in the business for all of your real estate closings contact authority title at 615-819-5880 you can also stop by their brandy wine office located at 319 hickerson drive just off of the square they are our preferred real estate partner you can also follow them at authoritarians escrow on facebook Welcome back to the Mr. Murfreesboro Show. This is Bill Wilson, also known as Mr. Murfreesboro. And we're joined in the studio here with Thurman Mullins. Also known as Herschel's Boy. Also known as Herschel's Boy. (laughs) And we've just been reminiscing. What was uh, Murfreesboro like in 
63. Tell us a Oh, it's a whole about- different world. We, um, of course, I, I lived in the best of both worlds. I grew up in Blackman. One granddad lived a mile one way, the other one two miles the other. They farmed. My dad believed in a big garden. We always had calves and hogs and anything. Self-sufficient, you think. yeah. I uh, got a pony when I was five, my first mm. good horse when I was 14. But every morning i'd go to critchlow grammar school as in the 50s and early 60s and then later central high and they would drive us uh drive me to school after school i'd go to the store and then after the store we'd go home and do chores that's on the square uh, yeah as mullins jewelers on the square and my dad had started that back in 1936 <clears throat> and you knew everybody and yeah. back then uh, you had Beckton and Westbrooks, which was a, a com- comparable to a supermarket, I guess you'd say today, on the square right down below the store. And uh, we'd go down there. Mr. Robert Woods worked there, Mr. Beckton. But they butchered in the back and, you know, had a, a butcher on on hand. But you also had Lamb's Groceries on the square. That was on the east side. You also had O'Brien's. Um, this is before that's juniors. G- that's Jim oh, O'Brien's grandfather. Yeah, and then Bull you, and Robinson had us. That was way before them. Way before them, yeah. and Franks. then, um, but everybody knew everybody, and um, it's like you had Bells, Rones, Altmans, and Mullins jewelers on the square. Uh, if you came in Bales and you bought some little silver griffin head charms for a charm bracelet and they were short a ponytail charm, they'd call over to the jury store and if we had an extra one, they'd send me when I was eight years old running over to Bales <laughs> and drop off one. You were a runner. Uh, yeah, that, whatever. And they would uh, give them. At the time I was eight, I was doing most of the store's machine engraving. And they... Um, uh, had Mr. Homer Marlin working there, who was a World War One vet. Wow! And um, he was like another granddad, basically, you know, and just sweetest old fellow in the world. Right. Uh, he never owned a car. Lived out at Westview. I think there was only maybe one cab back then, but the cab would bring Mr. Homer in every morning. Griffith and Stickney. Him you remember Griff- uh, this Mr. Stickney Griffith? Or oh, the, Stickney Griffith. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I remember them. They were right next to Harrison's, side by side. Harrison's right. drugstore, Stickney and Griffith's. And um, then you had uh, Mouty's over Mouty on the east side. They had the Limeades. And Cherry uh, Cokes, too, when I was Yeah, there. Cherry Cokes. And then... Um, you had L&M Restaurant, which was Lytle and Marie was what L&M stood for. Their son, Jimmy, and me were the same age. So we'd go down. When they built Fuller Foods, which was right across the street from here, they'd have all these cardboard boxes out back. Right. And they had this real steep, and it was just straight down. So me and Jimmy and two or three more of the kids that was square rats, we'd go down there and square get those boxes, <laughs> pull it up to the top, and ride them down like sleds and right. lay on those No things. snow, just straight No, down. just dirt and cardboard boxes. <laughs> Worked like a charm. Right. And then later they built Beatty's uh, office supply Beatty, up, yeah. up there. And then um, – we, um, but yeah, we knew everybody, and everybody knew who you were. Couldn't get in trouble. I mean, I didn't worry about the police when I was high school age. I was worried about somebody calling daddy. You know, it just. Were you, uh, did you know my grandfather when he was? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I knew Mr. Wilson well, and uh, it was uh, when my granddad Mullins had leukemia. At that time, there wasn't a lot they could do, and the doctor. 
sent him home and he told Eddie to keep some hard liquor and just give him a sip if he got to hurting ever right. how much for he pain. needed for pain. Daddy didn't have a clue with all the bootleggers in Rutherford <laughs> County, and that seems strange, but Daddy didn't have a clue where you would get it, and if it was illegal <laughs> for him sure. to buy it. So your granddaddy, your granddaddy had to go to Nashville like once a week for some reason right? or send somebody down there with paperwork on right. prison or something, and they would stop and pick up a bottle, and Daddy would go meet the sheriff and give him the money, whatever it costs, <laughs> and take it home for my granddaddy Mullen so I've he wouldn't be hurting. I've heard stories that granddaddy – granddaddy kept liquor in the jail like if you're alcoholic instead yeah. of going into dts yeah he'd they start rocking their babies and losing he would give them the liquor so they would come down i mean yeah settle them down so that, that was medicinal yeah. i mean yeah, you, know, that's what you did what you had to do back right. then right and uh the courthouse of course we knew everybody uh it came through you know i mean it's just the way it was and uh there was two pool rooms right down below us and uh norse lover uh, lover and had the pool room and on saturday afternoons a lot of times you'd see the police cars pull up <laughs> and i used to like to go stand in the window and watch them load the drunks and <laughs> making faces yeah you know and they'd be loading them but when i was like five or six years old um, they'd give me a dime, and I'd go down to Beckton and Westbrooks, and I could get a box of tidbits, and I could get a um, Coca-Cola for a dime. And then, now what's a tidbit? What is those? Were little candy? cheese like cheese oh. deals? They're like little it's deals, little and crackers. they come in a box, right. and they I were they were a nickel a box. And then chewing gum was three for a dime. And um, I went in one day, and Mr. Woods said, uh, "Thurman, it's." I'm going to let you have two for a day. I thought he was kidding. I thought it was like written in stone somewhere. Right. This the is how it is from now on. Yeah. And I stopped and just paid a dollar seventy nine for, you know, chewing gum. He took all and, your money. <laughs> so, but he was, uh, and Mr. Woods would save me. Him and his wife never had any children. He was a little man, sweetest fella in the world. Right. He would save me all of the odd coins that came in. So, like, if he got a three-cent piece in change or a two-cent piece or uh, Indian head penny or v nickel it for you and then he would give them to me so i'd have like 16 cents in old money uh, cash value i'd go up to the store and daddy put those in the box for me and then he'd give me like you know a dime and a nickel and a penny i'd go back and give it to mr woods That's and um he called called me in one day i was about 12 and he said uh, i want to show you something and he says, if somebody comes in and claims it, he says, I'll have to let them have it. But he said, if nobody claims it in 30 days, it's yours. And it was a big pop-open coin pouch, and it had a Southern Cross of Honor in it. it belonged to somebody named Marlin. I've still got it. Right. Uh, had a bunch of old coins. Had right. some little pen knives in it and just stuff that people right. would collect or whatever. And nobody ever claimed it. But mm. by the time I was... Um, 18 i had a lockbox at the bank Full. that was smooth you know and some of them not nothing and some of them pretty neat coins you right. know but flying eagle silver pennies and the v nickels wow. and stuff like wow. that but that got me into coin collecting and and it's all at the bank i don't ever get to see it hardly, right. but it's there but at any rate before i forget something i wanted to mention two things I had not been to it in Lebanon, uh, said been there five years, is the Wilson County Veterans Museum. Right. And they've got a plaza that's just amazing. 
The only downside to it is it's only open from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. Monday through Friday at this point in time. But they've got a Huey helicopter in there. They've got a Jeep in there. They've mm. got one of my uniforms in there. But cool. all the uniforms, going back to Spanish-American War, World War One, or whatever, was worn by people in Wilson County. Wow. And it's, it's one of the nicest deals that nobody knows about. And the other thing I wanted to mention was right out here at MTSU. At the university. As, um, David Wright is a real good friend of mine, the artist. Uh, most people who are familiar with David, he's noted for doing the uh, Native American or Indian scenes, Mountain Man, Long Hunters, the right. Civil War figures, General Claiborne, uh, General Forrest, whoever. And he's been the technical advisor on a ton of movies, uh, Last of Mohicans and things like mm. that. But he was a Vietnam veteran, Army veteran, and he did a lot of sketches while he was in Vietnam a couple of years before I was there. And he encountered a gentleman named Chuck Creasy. And Chuck is an artist, and he had gone back to Vietnam in, like, 2018. And he did a lot of watercolors and sketches of people and the places in Vietnam on his return trip. He had been over there during the war. Well, they got together and did a program called Vietnam Then and Now. Right. And it opened at Mon Haven over outside of Nashville. And we went to it, and, and it was just really super good then since then it's been all over the country but Mm. right now i think it opened on november the 11th and it'll be there i think through the first week of december out at the charlie and hazel daniels veterans center on campus at mtsu and i i i'm pretty sure it's a free program to go see the artwork Mm. and but it's well worth a trip if somebody wants something a little unique or different to do mm-hmm. and see the differences in vietnam in the 60s versus the 2010s you know because you but, were there what what year were you there was it the i tet was there offensive? in 69 and 70 right after the tet well actually they had tet every year the one everybody talks about when they say tet was 68 yeah i got there right after that but um, it wasn't ar- you weren't armed. I was. I was. A, I, well, I was a Navy Marine. I Navy slipped Marine. in the back door. Uh, what had happened? <laughs> I joined the Navy. Uh, I went to a destroyer for a couple of weeks, and I believe that's the sickest I ever was in my life. Seasick. Oh. oh man, what they did was in Mayport, Florida, and they called destroyers tin cans for a reason. I mean, them things bob and duck, and <laughs> they're ready. They had a big storm blow in, so they took us all out to sea and cut the engines so the ships wouldn't be banging up against one another and dock well that thing was just dipping and diving and going on so when i left there i came back in and i talked to the recruiter had to check in with them when you got back <laughs> how's it going and he said how, how do you like his sea duty i said man i'm gonna die i said i, I have screwed up royal joining the navy i said i'm not gonna live he said you know what he said everybody likes sea duty but you he said I tell you what, he said, I've been looking at your record. said, you've got a little college. I'd been to college a couple of years. said, uh, you like animals. 
He said, you'd make a corpsman. I said, what does a corpsman do? He <laughs> said, work in a hospital nine to five. said, you'd probably be at Corpus Christi. You like cowboy stuff, or you'd be in Memphis close to home. <laughs> said, best job in the Navy. And I uh, said, working in a hospital probably. I said, Orderly. I think I'd like to be a corpsman then. <laughs> he said, well, that's an 18-week A school, and that involves a little more time in this. And I thought, what about – corpsman on destroyers he said man you have to be like a chief petty officer to be on a destroyer and said everybody wants on a ship but you he said you wouldn't have to worry about that yeah so when i got to san diego i checked in at the pink palace here's all these pictures of these guys in marine uniforms on the wall but they've all got navy insignia and so i asked a guy said what's the deal on these guys wearing marine uniforms with navy insignia he said they're corpsmen i says yeah but why are they in marine uniforms he said where do you think the marine corps gets their medics from they're corpsmen said that's what what we do here and i said you're kidding me so at any rate there you have we went through this school and it was out of all the schools i've ever been through the best and where was it was it san diego Diego. right across from balboa park um you if you didn't pass every course at the end of two weeks you went back and started over and mm-hmm. you did that twice and then the rumor was you went to river patrol boats in nam <laughs> if you if you didn't pass everything right well i hated most schools but i loved this stuff and it was materia medica metrology uh you went in assisted with autopsies and it was it was first class run yeah. deal right well then i went to guam and worked on the airback ward and we got half the fresh the wounded wounded, wounded. Uh, yeah, yeah we'd get half the fresh wounded navy and marines would come to guam the other half would go to yakuska japan and usually we'd average about 80 people a night now that was a variety of everything under the sun it could be abdominal wounds be amputees it could be a guy allergic to malaria pills i mean it, it ran the anything. spectrum anything now, and you had no previous medical experience except for that 18 weeks wow. and then Jeez. you had one nurse on duty and that was it on the ward and what they would do they would back in typically around 12 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning they'd fly them into anderson air force base on guam then they had buses that had been gutted that had litters in them and then they would take the buses load the guys on those that we had a loading dock on our ward and they'd back up they'd load up on the loading dock we'd unload them get them in bed uh check their records match them up check uh, when they'd had their medications last if they had ivs make sure they were everything was working right once things settled down here came the doctors and they would decide who's going to this ward in the morning, who's going to that ward in the morning, and go through all of that. And then if the guys could have it, they all got hamburger, french fries, and a Coca-Cola, which was a big deal for them. <laughs> big, big to do. Yeah, and then when they all left the ward six, seven the next morning, then you totally stripped that ward. And, I mean, every bed was wiped down with betadine. You had plastic covers on them. The floors were mopped. They were waxed. They were buffed. Then about 10 o'clock, here come all the guys that were either going back to Vietnam or they have been sent to state for further treatment. So they'd be there till about 2, and they'd leave. 
then you totally strip that ward. You do it again. Same thing. Do it the whole thing again. Then you waited on the next airbag. And it, it just was like that. And Guam is 30 miles long, seven miles wide. At the time, there was zero stuff to do on Guam. I mm-hmm. mean, just wasn't a lot of extracurriculars skip there. Rocks, <laughs> skip rocks. Yeah. And uh, deepest part of the ocean in the world was right there at Guam, you know, seven miles deep right off that thing, the Mariana's Trench. That's right. Oh, so, so at any rate um, – after about five months of this, I said, you know what? <laughs> there were three ways to get off of Guam if you were a corpsman. You could serve out your time. You could die or you could volunteer for the Marines. I said, you know what? I think I want to go to the Marines. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I volunteered to go to the Marines. So I went from there to uh, um, Camp, uh, well, Camp, Pendleton. Camp Pendleton. And uh, what was funny, when uh, when I got my orders, when I finally came in, I'd been up all night long working an air vac cord. And I was started to go see about getting breakfast or just going back and going to sleep. I was wore out. And I ran into a yeoman that worked in the office there taking care of paperwork. And he says, aren't you Mullins? I said, yeah. And he said, I think I've got orders on you. I said, great. When am I leaving this place? <laughs> he said, it's real soon. He said, I'm getting ready to unlock. I said, you want to go down and see? I said, sure. I had a 30-day leave that started immediately and i had to be at camp pendleton in 30 days so you had 30 days to go do whatever yeah so what happened to me though when i got down to the uh air base to, to leave i got down there and they said man alive this is first of june they said you know we got all these dependents leaving dependents flying in people taking leave out of school kids all of this he said we've got full bird colonels been sitting here three or four days wow. i said you are kidding me he said nope I, I was sick so i go over and put my name and they had where the navy checked in the marines checked in At that time i checked in with navy adco uh the army whatever and I'm just stuck. I mean, I can't. I've done left the base. I'm here. What do you do? So, men, two guys, we just get out and ride around that, that, that I knew from there, yeah. just look, talking, shooting the bull. So, about four in the evening or so, he said, Let's go back by and see if they've, anything's changed. And I go in. True story, as I walked in, this guy's calling me over the, the wow. PA to come to the Navy ADCO deal. I walk over, and Mickey Harris, who's Jack Tomlinson's grandson, right. his daddy is running the Navy Echo deal. And we talk about my daddy, Herschel, and we talk <laughs> about cutting Jack and Carl Tipton and all the wonderful folks of Murfreesboro. Oh my and he put me on a, a like basically a cargo plane, and I was out of there in about an hour. It's and, all uh, about who you know. Yeah, that's right. And Even so, in Guam. So we flew back, <laughs> and then – I went through uh, my uh, Marines to go to the Marines and be stationed with them. You go through Fleet Marine Force School, and they're big on numbers. So all Navy corpsmen aren't 8404s, but all 8404s are Navy corpsmen. And there's other ratings, I mean, like X-ray techs and all kind of stuff. So I go through my 8404 training there at Pendleton, and then uh, I go through recon indoctrination program. So I've got orders to go to first recon when I get to Vietnam. When I get to Vietnam, that's recon. Uh, recon. recon uh-huh. Yeah, recon. Our our, our logo. Uh, see right here on the cap. You got the patch. Swift, silent, and deadly. 
now we've redone our our logos i wish i'd brought one of those with me <laughs> that's uh, our new one is slow shaky and deaf <laughs> slow, slow, what? slow shaky and deaf that's our, that's my guy's new one now but anyway back then we were bad or at least we thought we were but when i got there they sent me to um uh they called several of us out front and they went down the line they were nailing us you know and they said y'all come with us uh, all your 8404s out of this group so it wasn't all the 8404s was about 10 of us I thought, well, it's strange they're going to be sending us out to our units tonight, you know, because I knew First Recon was close to Da Nang. And I said, where are we going? He said, Third Marines at Quang Tree up at Dong Ha. I said, well, I've got orders to First Recon. He said, they've just been changed. And just I like said, that. Yeah. And I said, well, I really want to go to First Recon. <laughs> and uh, what it was, they were just short of corpsmen. And I was up there about a month with Third and then they got the replacements in, and then I went back. And it was funny, when I was with Recon, I mean, we went out on patrol. I carried uh, Claymore. I carried an M79, 25 HE rounds, 15 shotguns, two looms, two smokes, two gases. I carried an M16, my Unit 1 medical bag, two IV bottles, K-Bar and I. I can pack it in, in the dark right now. But you went out on patrols with six to eight men, and everybody had to cover everybody's tracks the biggest problem they were having at first recon was there wasn't a lot of corpsmen and so a lot of teams were going out without corpsmen so when we were in the rear we would have marines that expressed an interest that would go down to first med battalion which is a big deal about a mile from us right and they would work down there when they would be back up to the deal we would give them classes and before I went to Vietnam, I can remember this Navy chief had been in World War II. He had been in Korea. He said, are you nervous about going? And truthfully, my biggest fear wasn't so much getting shot, but was being needed and not knowing what to do. And I told him that. He says, you don't worry about it. He said, with all this 18 weeks of training, he said, that's good background. He said, it comes down to stop the bleeding, keep them breathing, bag them, tag them, and get them out of there. Oh, my word. And honestly, it that's was good to have all that training, more for being at the hospital in Guam. Right. But when you're out in the field, it all came down to stop the bleeding, stop the keep bleeding. them breathing, <laughs> bag them, what tag them, get them out what he told you. And so we had a lot of good young Marines that were going out with Unit 1 medical bags. And they would come through periodically and inspect our hooches looking for contraband. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the hooches wasn't much place to hide anything, but you had plywood up about four or five foot, and then you had screens. and The, the hooches is where y'all slept. Where we slept, right. had old army cots in there. And we would take um, uh, old ammo cases and make lockers with a padlock on it for personal stuff right. or whatever. Well, I mean, what were they worried you would have? Well, there was always a fear of drugs and Marijuana, that kind of stuff oh, okay. like that. Yeah, okay. and, and to be fair, and, and back then, there had been like uh, a Playboy magazine would have been a bad thing. I mean, yeah, they'd just... You're in trouble. Yeah, you're in big trouble You need on to that. stay focused. Yeah, I need to stay focused <laughs> on the right thing. That's right. So what? Uh, any kind of contraband okay. that you weren't supposed to have, you know... You Could you have cigarettes? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Cigarettes and... Um, it was uh, Budweiser. Well, what was funny to me was that each company had like a little company club, 
And I never did understand that, but at our little club, they had an, a Kai 1800 SD reel-to-reel tape player. Uh, I mean, it was for music. I've got pictures, yeah. but it was just. I've seen some. It of was them. sort of a dump, you know. I mean, yeah. it just had some chat, you know, maybe 12, 15 people at a time in right. a bar or whatever. And uh, Cokes were like 15. No, Cokes were a quarter and beer was like 15 cents. Now, I never did figure that out. But what was funny was they would come through periodically and they would turn that place upside down. And they'd go through everybody's gear. They'd pull up the little old mattress about that thick on those army cots. They'd look through blankets, look around under the hoops, look around. They never touched my stuff, never. And me and the other corpsmen got to talking about it. They never, they never touched any of the other corpsmen's stuff. And about 10 years ago, my old uh, company CEO, Jerry Spolter, who's a maritime lawyer in Frisco now, uh, he came through with his wife. They were just going around the country and looking up some of us and visiting and all. And we were talking. I said, Jerry, I said, I was always curious, and some men, some of the other corpsmen were talking about it, <laughs> but said, y'all would come through and go through everybody's gear but, but the corpsmen's, and yeah. you never did touch mine or anybody else's. I said, why was that? He laughed. He said, we was afraid we'd find something. And he said, <laughs> "He said we could get more Marines, but we couldn't get you more needed. Corpsmen. Y'all were needed. <laughs> and yeah. so they didn't yeah. want to find anything. So we were like pet monkeys that's to a all. point. We could get away I, with stuff. That's great. Hey, we're going to take a break. All right. We'll be back here in a few minutes. We're talking to Thurman Mullins. We'll be right Herschel's back. Herschel's born. Herschel's born. <laughs> I'm going to get me a jacket with that on <laughs> Hey, it's Bill. Did you know I also sell for Parks Real Estate? Meredith Thomas and I make up the Thomas Wilson team. We have over 25 years of real estate experience and have helped nearly 1,000 families buy and sell real estate here in Murfreesboro, Rutherford County, and Middle Tennessee. Why not choose us to help you and your family with all your real estate needs? Give us a call at 615-406-5872 or 615-896-4040. Or you can follow me at Mr. Murfreesboro on Facebook or Instagram. Curve them, crack them, or bend them. We can mend them. Come by Wheelworks, located 516 South Church Street, for a free estimate. We also sell performance and passenger tires, as well as aftermarket and factory wheels. We also install lift kits, and we've been sponsoring and serving this community for 15 years. Come see us at Wheelworks at 516 South Church Street, or give us a call at 615-849-3848. Rhonda McCrary has been in the mortgage business for 29 years. She was voted as a favorite mortgage loan officer in the 2018 and 2019 DJ Ruthie Awards, and she's a proud member of the Middle Tennessee State University 1989 graduating class. She specializes in all types of mortgage products and takes pride in going the extra mile and personally taking care of her customers. You can visit her at 1639 Medical Center Parkway, Suite 203 here in Murfreesboro. Reach her by phone, 615-419-9193, or even apply online at loansbyrhonda.com. Welcome back to the Mr. Murfreesboro Show. This is Bill Wilson, Mr. Murfreesboro. We've been joined in the studio with Thurman Mullins. Herschel's uh, boy. Herschel's boy. <laughs> and we've been talking, you know, it's Veterans Day last week, and we want to give thanks to all the veterans uh, for all that they've done, and the, the, the veterans, the, the soldiers that are out there now, and the veterans uh, past, present, and future. You know, that's a a big part of it. And when I was at the Bicentennial Mall, 
which I was the one that opened it, and I wore a lot of hats in my life. But at the Bicentennial Mall, I was very fortunate to get to work on the World War II Memorial, and all of those veterans are, have passed on now. Right. Harriet Howard, that was a World War II Navy wave. Uh, uh, General Hugh Mott, that was one of the heroes of Remagen Bridge that saved the bridge so the Allies could get across. That was uh, General Eisenhower said that, Hugh Mott probably cut down six months off the war for what him and his people did. Um, General Enoch Stevenson, who was flying a plane over Normandy D-Day. Those were people on that World War II trust. And um, uh, I, I was very honored to do that. Carl P. Mayfield, uh, who was an Army veteran during Vietnam, um, I got with him and some other people and Donnie Shepard, who's passed on now, is a good friend of mine I was in Vietnam with. Um, we brought in the traveling Vietnam wall to the right. mall. Carl P. and them set up a stage. They broadcast live. Billy Ray Cyrus would come down, Craig Morgan, Crystal Gale. We had everybody would come and do a salute. We had the Vanderbilt Navy ROTC involved. Uh, we had uh, candlelight vigils. Right. And we did a week-long deal. And um, it was the kind of thing that, I don't think there's been anything in Nashville, again, other than the Veterans Day Parade and right. the ceremonies. But your veterans at some point are going to cross over to the memorial standpoint. And um, a lot of, I've actually been giving talks before, and they'd go, well, you're supposed to be talking about Veterans Day instead of Memorial Day. And I go, <laughs> well, see, all those guys were veterans, you know, five years ago. Right. One of my favorite stories was at the Bicentennial Mall is we used to do walking tours, and we'd have school kids, we'd have veterans groups, we'd have garden clubs, just everybody. You name it. And we'd walk around the mall, and Kim Hinton from Murfreesboro was a primary architect on the mall. And he was a big reason it was a state park. He he wanted to see the Smoky Bear hats and the rangers interacting with the public. And there's some stuff that's kind of hidden that if you don't really know about it, you'll walk right by it and not know the what makes it unique. But anyway, I would start out maybe with 12 people. And we would get all the way down toward the end, uh, say, to the World War II Memorial. And I'd look around. I might have 30 or 40 just picking oh, people, people latching up. latching on. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And so we're down at the World War II Memorial. And if you've never been there, you need to go. I mean, the whole park, but particularly that World War II Memorial. The centerpiece is that big granite globe. weighs 18,161 pounds. They've got gold stars. There's actually 288, but they're to commemorate the 5,731 gold star mother and fathers that were a result of, of World War II. You've got the bench with the seven Medal of Honor winners on it, and then you got this big granite abyss there that's like the one on the uh, Navy has the USS Tennessee, but all of them tie in to Tennessee, every one of those things. Mm. So one of them's on planes, and I'm standing there, and I'm telling the people about the planes, Sky Harbor at Florence, uh, about the, the Nashville was one of the places where they would be given tests to determine if they might be a bombardier or possibly a pilot or what they might go into. And I'm standing there going through this and throwing in a little history and 
these two men and two women walk up that were elderly, probably my age now, but they walk up and I'm going through the spill and this little old woman's holding her hand up like a third grader and this her husband's doing that. And, <laughs> and uh, I said, ma'am, you got something you'd like to say? Go right ahead. And he said, you're doing fine. I said, you shut up. And she just looked as funny. And I went on about the deal and I started in about the Memphis bail. And boy, she's really waving her arm and I'm telling them all about the Memphis Bell and how many missions and about how great it was. And this little woman says, says uh, Mr. Ranger? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, my husband flew the Memphis Bell. <laughs> uh, he didn't want anybody to... And I was standing there talking to Captain Morgan, uh, talking to Robert Morgan, uh, his uh, navigator, uh, Robert Hansen, was with him, tech sergeant. So I'm standing there telling Captain Morgan and Hansen all about the Memphis Bell. You know? and, and I'm he, sure they were greatly enlightened. Thing. Yeah, he flew it. Wow. He was wow. the pilot during the war. That's funny. And uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I tell you what was amazing to me, we had a, a Marine veteran in a wheelchair. And he was sitting down there one day at the memorial, and I uh, had a cap on with the Marines, and I walked up. And I was a corpsman with the Marines, and we talked about that a little little bit. And anyway, while we were talking, I said, uh, uh, when did you go in during World War II? He said, oh, I wasn't in World War II. He said, I was in Korea. I said, oh, well, bless your heart. I said, well, I'm, I admire and respect you guys. And I said, I've read everything you can read about the Chosen Reservoir and about Chesty Puller and the whole Luzon, nine yards. Yeah. And, yeah, Luzon. and uh, he said, well, he had joined the Marine Reserves. And when uh, Korea broke out, they shipped them uh, out to go to Korea. He had never been to boot camp. There was a whole group of them. Oh, my Never word. been to boot camp. They learned to shoot their rifles on the ships going to Korea. Then they went through and fought through Korea, did wow. their PT and classes, whatever, and on ships going over. When they got out, there was some idiot in Washington was wanting to make them go through boot camp. After they'd, oh. already, been After they'd already gotten through Korea. Oh. They were the only group of Marines that wear the dress blues that never went through boot camp. Now, as a Navy corpsman, I wore everything the Marines wore but one thing, dress blues. Those real pretty dress blues with the stripe and the white hat and all of that. Uh, I wore the dress greens. I wore the khakis. Um, I wore everything. I had two sea bags. I had a Navy sea bag. I had a Marine sea bag. And uh, but only the guys that completed uh, either San Diego or Paris Island uh, wear the dress blues, and I think that's great. I mean, I think it's the way it ought to be. Periodically, some yo-yo decide, no, they ought to let them. Uh, nah, that's keep it, different. Keep you know? it that way. Yeah, yeah, keep it that way. That's heritage. You know, that yeah. means something. Tradition, sure. Yeah. And uh, but. Uh, for all practical purposes, everywhere we went, you know, we were Marines, treated like Marines. We right. was in Vietnam, you know. And the thing with corpsmen or medics, from what I read, I'm, I'm an avid history buff and reader. I just finished reading Ernie Pyle's Brave Men again. I probably read that book three or four times. And to me, if somebody was wanting to learn about World War II, they need to read That's Ernie Pyle. Ernie That's Pyle. the book, yeah. And he was a war correspondent. He Later he was killed uh, right off of Okinawa, um, you know, during with the Japanese. But he, he went all the way from North Africa 
through Europe, and he went in with the second wave at Normandy. He went in with the group Towards when they entered Paris yeah. and all of that. But it's a tremendously well-written, good book at any age could sit there and probably enjoy if they were into history. But they uh, uh, deal with, uh, the, uh, from what I gather, the Germans and the uh, Americans honored the deal of the armbands to a point. Of course, there were a ton of medics, both sides, killed in Europe. While the war's just, going on. Whether while it's battle. going on, it didn't matter if it had an armband or not. But if it was where they saw somebody go out to work on somebody with an armband, it was supposedly... Everybody knew we don't shoot them. They're mm-hmm. medics, and, and right. that's it. Mm. Now, in uh, when they hit the Pacific, it was a whole different deal. The Japanese looked for the armbands. Oh. <laughs> they were targets. Easier, well, they're probably easier targets. Well, too. they figured they'd demoralize the troops is when the right. guy toting the morphine and the bandages right. is knocked yeah. out. You ain't got anybody to bandage you if right. you get shot Psychological. Down. So mm-hmm. during that era, they all started carrying rifles instead of a forty five if they carried a weapon. Um, then they would uh, try to look as much like their their brothers the marines as they did as they could right so they they went overboard not to look like a medic, uh, a medic. Mm-hmm. and vietnam was sort of the same deal yeah. i mean you know it was where um i all all the corpsmen i knew out in the field you couldn't tell them from a marine just mm-hmm. looking at them you know who's this well, we've only got a few minutes here i want to thank you for coming in and yeah taking your time who do you have who who's in here with this i've been wondering you? about that do you know who they come in with are? you or <laughs> where's secu- oh, we got security my, please <laughs> got my wife ann here tonight again she's my chauffeur tonight and then i got grandson hunter williams and he's baseball a baseball player. man from cumberland and a calf tagger extraordinary and mm-hmm. the weather allows this week he's going to be a calf brander this week <laughs> so we're working on that and, and hopefully get his first deer. Right? Yeah, he's well, working I know he's on the buck. Deer. He's yeah. got them spotted, but he's getting uh, getting those laid out. So yeah, so we he's he's my right hand man well, right now. That's awesome. Hey, Kelsey, what do you got going on? We just got like a minute here. Oh man, I just I'm in awe. You know, yeah, for us sitting there, if, 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 you don't know if you don't know. I mean, yeah. we'll never know what it was like, but it's just so. So great to we learn. We could have them all in several hours. I mean, oh, I will, like, I wish I could get some coffee and we could talk another hour. <laughs> I'll give me some eight by tens with Herschel's boy on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Thurman. <laughs> we won't let Bill forget that when we hunt. <laughs> you, you, you've been listening to Mr. Murfreesboro Show. Thanks to Thurman Mullins. Thanks to Kelsey Williams, Hunter, and Ann. God bless you. Go out and do something nice for somebody. Y'all take care. <laughs>